But what I am going to talk about is concentration. And what I was reminded of uh, when all this came up about the pipes is when I was talking in my one of my talks, I think my first talk, I was talking about the digging that was going on outside of the meditation hall, if you remember. Um, <laughs> and how that actually led me into very deep states of concentration. Um, so hopefully what's going to be happening is going to support your practice. It's not going to distract your practice too much. And it really depends how, how we use it, doesn't it? So I want to talk tonight about the development of concentration or serenity. And talking about the development of concentration is also talking about happiness. And we don't usually think of these two things together. I know I didn't for a long time. But I received a teaching a little bit of the way into my practice years, a teaching that said that happiness is a condition for concentration to arise. It's a cause for concentration to arise. And I remember when I heard that, it was really something I hadn't really reflected on before, and it made me happy. I felt happy when I understood that because it led me to believe that my practice and the development of concentration didn't have to be so hard. It didn't have to be difficult. And I think that uh, when we think of concentration, we have many associations about what it requ what's required to get concentrated and ideas of how we need to practice in order to concentrate our mind. We could have the sense that we really have to bunker down, we really have to make a lot of effort and you know, really start to strive in our <coughs> practice to get a certain degree of concentration going. And if we have this kind of attitude, this can lead to lots of judgment and comparing of our experiences, other people, comparing ourselves with other people, and it could lead to a lot of disappointment in our practice because we keep evaluating and having a, an idea and a standard of where we're supposed to be or how it's supposed to happen, and then just keep falling into a kind of disappointment with ourselves and our practice. In other words, we become unhappy. And when we're unhappy, this isn't really so conducive to the deepening of our concentration. But the Buddha described concentration as enjoyment. And he put a lot of attention on the cultivation of happiness in our practice, a happiness that leads to concentration. Usually in Buddhist teachings, in, in Buddhist teachings there's so much emphasis on suffering. There's um, an association that many people have that practicing the Buddha way is really getting into dukkha and suffering. But then we can forget that the path is really about the end of suffering. It's about coming to the end of suffering, which is happiness, which is coming to a place of happiness. And coming to that experience, that realization of happiness, isn't something that necessarily happens at the end of the path, but it's something that we can experience at any moment, any moment of, of 
of our experience. It can happen here and now. And so a lot of the reflection on concentration is starting to get a sense and a feeling for this happiness and contentment that is present for us already, that is, that is here within our being that we can so easily miss and so easily forget. The Buddha said, this is a quote from the Buddha, for one who is joyful, there is no need to have the wish, may my body be serene. It is a natural law that the body will be serene for one who is joyful. For one whose body is serene, there is no need to have the wish, may I feel happiness. It is the natural law that one who is serene will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need to have the wish, may my mind be concentrated. It is a natural law for one who is happy that the mind will be concentrated. For one who is concentrated, there is no need to have the wish, may I know and see things as they really are. It is a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. What is this concentration that the Buddha is referring to? This is what I want us to explore together this evening. Eugene inspires me to look at the, uh, the where words come from. He's, he, he, he enjoys that. So concentrate comes from the word concentrum. Con, the first part, means together. Centrum implies the center, comes from center, which means to bring or draw to a common center, to move towards a center. So concentration means to collect, to come together in one place, or to come into and be in harmony or accord with something. So the collecting of the mind. And with concentration, the mind is centered rightly and evenly upon its object. So we, we collect the attention on an object which produces a mental one-pointedness. So the concentration is this mental one-pointedness. As we practice this and deepen into it, the mind becomes very unified. What comes together, what co actually collects together, are the mental factors. And depending on what mental factors are brought together, concentration will either be wholesome or unwholesome. It will either be the, co the concentration that is part of the Eightfold Path, or it won't be. When we are practicing meditation, we're bringing together factors of mindfulness and concentration that are supported with wisdom. And it's the wisdom aspect that makes concentration a wholesome or a noble factor of mind. Therefore, it's called right concentration or wise concentration. This is the, the factor on the Eightfold Noble Path. 
But I think sometimes we forget that there is also an unwholesome or an unwise concentration. Because the mind can collect into a concentrated or focused uh, uh, way of being. But if, there, it, if, if it isn't supported by wisdom, then it isn't going to be wise concentration. An example of this is like when a thief enters a house. That thief is going to be very mindful. It's going to be very concentrated. But that mindfulness and concentration is not supported with wisdom. In fact, that mindfulness and concentration will be infused with greed and ignorance and probably some other factors as well. So this is not wise concentration. This is not the factor of the Eightfold Noble Path. This is not the kind of concentration that the Buddha talked about or is encouraging as we deepen into our meditation. So the Pali word for right concentration is samadhi. So when we use the word samadhi, we're talking about wholesome or right, wise concentration. And samadhi is the deliberate attempt to raise the mind to higher and more purified levels of awareness, to refine consciousness, the intention, the attempt to refine consciousness. Samadhi collects together the ordinarily dispersed stream of mental states that we know so well, those states that are, that are distracted and restless and moving here and there, the samadhi b practice brings them together to induce a strong inner unification or this one-pointed uh, uh, mind. And the experience of that is an unbroken attentiveness. And with that comes a consequent tranquility or calm or serenity. So when the mind isn't so distracted and restless and moving and uh, filled with anxiety and, and agitation, when that starts to unify, we feel the calm. We feel the ease. And with that arises the feeling of contentment and happiness. And that's where we can start to access that. The mind, untrained in concentration, moves in a scattered manner. The Buddha compared this to a, flap, a flapping about of a fish taken from the water and thrown onto dry land. That's what the scattered, unconcentrated mind is like. The mind that is rushing from idea to idea where there's no control, and, and this mind is very prey to the hindrances and to the uh, stirring of the defilements, the greed and the hatred and the delusion in the mind. There's, no, there's nowhere for the, for the mind to rest in this kind of mind. And so we have, all of us have a preference, don't we, for this unified mind. Well, we like that. And why? Why do we, we, we want that? Do we like that? Because it feels good. It's pleasurable. It's very, the, the, the have that pleasure arise through the, through the consciousness, through the mind stream, we like that. 
We can rest there. We can feel at home there. The concentrated mind is compared to a clear, mirror-like pond, unruffled by any breeze, a pond that faithfully reflects what is placed before it, can see things as they are. And this is the way that a concentrated mind becomes an instrument, a tool for us for investigation and inquiry, because the mind is so still and so clear collected that we can actually see things. We can, the, the attention can land upon an object and we can see it for what it is. This is what, this is the, the, the joy that arises in the concentration. Concentration can be developed through two methods of practice. One method is called uh, shamatha bhavana. Bhavana is practice, shamatha is uh, uh, serenity, uh, tranquility. Bhavana is the development, the development of serenity. So there's, that's one method, and the other method is vipassana bhavana, which is the development of insight. I'll say a little bit about each one. The shamatha bhavana is a method of practice that is directed specifically to attain deep states of concentration. Deep states of concentration at the level of absorption, or jhana, jhana practice. And probably all of you have heard this word jhana. We kind of, you know, it's tossed around in, in Buddhist circles, but many of us don't know so much about it. And for myself, too, it was a long time before I started learning something about jhana. And I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, in this talk tonight, just to, not to teach you jhana. I'm not here to teach you jhana practice, but I want to give you just a little bit of an overview of what, uh, what this is about, because we hear about it, and some of us don't really know. Or we may be having experiences, and we don't know how to uh, think about or hold the experiences that we're having. In the shamatha practice, we exclude the multiplicity of, our, of the phenomena that is, is arising and passing from our field of attention by directing the one-pointed attention on a single object. We, we take an object and we keep the attention focused on that object, like the breath. For the first week, we were doing this uh, Anapanasati practice, the mindfulness of breathing, returning back to the breath again and again. That was a, that's the development of concentration, shamatha, bringing the attention back again and again and again to help settle the mind, to unify the mind. We do that also with metta practice. Some people here are practicing metta and, and using the phrases, the three or four phrases, and coming back to them again and again and again, a single, uh, having the attention on a single object. Some traditions do use mantras or uh, light or can candle flames or something that will focus the attention, focus the mind. And this practice results in the deep states of mental unification as we do that. Now the Vipassana Bhavana 
is a method of practice where there's no attempt to exclude that diverse and changing phenomena from our field of attention. We open to it, and our mindfulness is directed at, that at the changing states of mind and body. And we do this in order for insight to arise, insight into uh, the three characteristics uh, and to uh, realizing nibbana, attaining a nibbana. And our task is to maintain a continuous awareness by keeping the attention focused on our present changing experience moment to moment to moment. Keep bringing the attention back to what's happening. Bring the attention back to what's happening. We return again and again. And in doing this, we develop concentration. It's the same thing. It's like we, we begin to unify the mind and the body through this returning back to the present moment, even with the changing experience. We can even call this mindful concentration or concentrated mindfulness. We don't have to separate these words and make them so different, but actually we can start to have a sense of how they work together. That by bringing the mindfulness to the present moment, we deepen into a concentrated state. Eugene actually referred to this morning um, when he talked about the encouraging you to be continuous in your practice as a key to the empowering of your uh, vipassana practice, of your insight practice. And it's the, it's as the concentration gets stronger, it actually becomes a, uh, a, 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 a power, a force in the mind that we can direct to our practice. It, it, has a, it builds a momentum in our practice that we can actually use to, for it develops energy that we can start to build in our practice and then helps us uh, uh, deepen. So these two methods, uh, uh, the development of serenity and the development of insight. And so when we walk on the path, this path of concentration, path of mindfulness and concentration, I talked in my uh, first talk about the first step of uh, establishing a suitable environment, which is the first thing we need to do, to come into a kind of seclusion where we're not so distracted by the usual things that we get distracted by, or the, the, our, the sense pleasures aren't uh, getting uh, so activated and infatuated with all the, the sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touches and all the things that stimulate us through the day. So we come into this uh, more secluded environment. And our practice is supported by the Eightfold Noble Path. It's supported by the, the methods that we learn. It's supported by the, the qualities of mind, which I mentioned at that time of mindfulness and alertness and ardency which Eugene spoke about last night. And so as we clear away these external distractions, what we first get confronted with are the five hindrances. And this is the talk that I gave on the five hindrances because for people who just came into the retreat, 
uh, at the beginning of March, we're likely experiencing uh, the impact of those hindrances, uh, the, the hindrances of, uh, of, of desire, of the wanting mind, uh, aversion or the not wanting mind, uh, sloth and torpor, sleepiness, boredom, dullness the opposite energy of restlessness or the imbalanced energy, and the fifth hindrance being doubt. And it would be interesting for you to reflect now that it's a week or so later, just to have a sense of how and if those hindrances are impacting you now in your, in your practice, just to get a sense, have, have they started to quiet down? compared to a week ago? Or are, do they come and go? Or are they sometimes more activated than other times? For those of you who have been here for six weeks now, also to reflect on where are you in relationship to those hindrances? When the hindrances are strong and when they're activated, we need, it's very, very tiring. This is the hard part of the practice. And we need to work with our energy by, uh, with sitting and walking, balancing our sittings and walkings. And we work with just trying to let the waves of those hindrances just come and go. And when they're strong, it's really important to simplify the practice, make the practice very, very simple. Just, just the breath, or just the simple walking. If we're doing the metta practice, just real simple phrases, making everything very simple for ourselves, so that the, the waves of those hindrances have a chance to move through. This is, this is part of the purification process. It doesn't mean that we've fallen backwards. It doesn't mean that we've uh, lost the practice, or that we should give up, or we should go home. They just, sometimes they get activated and sometimes they die down. For some people, as practice develops and as you go further with your meditation, the hindrances do start to quiet down. They're not as bothersome. And we can have longer periods of time where we feel more balanced, we feel quieter, the, the tranquility is starting to be more predominant, we feel calm, and yet we still feel a certain level of energy and brightness which we can focus into our practice. There's a name for this stage of practice which is called access concentration. In the, uh, in, in the, in the uh, teachings, access concentration, what, what, what this is implying is it's access to something, right? Access concentration. And it's access into the deeper states of absorption. It means that there's the, as one gets quieter and starts to develop more in their practice, there's a possibility that one may be able to go deeper into states of absorption or the jhanas. This access concentration is marked by the absence of the hindrances. It's when the hindrances quiet down. 
it said that this stage is like a child who has just learned to walk. It's like a child. We finally learned how to walk. You know, we can, we can be there in our practice. At this point, consciousness is more refined. Thoughts slow down. And we might even be able to identify the beginnings and the endings of thoughts. And generally, there's little interest in the content of our thoughts at this point. The mind will feel alert, bright, and spacious, but very focused. The body may feel grounded, and at the same time, light and spacious. The boundaries of the body may begin to soften, and we may even experience the boundaries of the body disappearing, so there's no, not uh, such a strong sense of, the, of a solid body. And our breath may be very light and very slow. The whole process seems effortless at this point. When we notice that the attention has moved away, there's very little effort needed to bring the attention back. We don't have to work so hard at this stage of the practice. It seems like things are kind of happening by themselves. And we feel very at ease in the practice. So at this point, it might be good to talk about what's called the five jhanic factors. Because these are the factors, mental factors, that are present in access concentration. And each one of these factors counteracts the five hindrances. So when one is strong and present, it suppresses one of the five hindrances. So these are the five factors that come into play, and the hindrances die away at this point in our practice. So this is a little bit, this is all a little bit technical, but I think that some of you might be interested in this model and the way that this works, because in a, this is a, I think it's a very um, good systematic way to understand what's actually happening as we deepen into our meditation. There might be some of you here who aren't actually so interested, and it's not really so applicable to your practice, and that's fine. You can either just let it go or you know, come back to the awareness practice or maybe just be a little bit interested in this. So see where, where you are as you listen to this. So the five jhanic factors, the factors that come into play when the hindrances die away. And I think these, I think I really appreciate knowing about these five factors because I think that you, anytime the hindrances are very strong, we can actually identify and learn to understand these factors and how they play in our mind. The first one is called, uh, and it's a little fancy, but I'll explain it, uh, applied thought or the initial application of, of attention. And what that means is that we have the uh, intention to return back to the primary object. We have the intention to come back. It's that, it's the energy that we aim back to the object, like when we come back to the breath, 
or we come back to a sensation. We bring the attention back. That's act that there's a name for that. It, in Pali, it's called vitaka. We bring the attention back. And this is actually the key to developing concentration. It's that, that intention to return back again and again and again. By lifting the mind up to its object, this factor counteracts the dullness, the sleepiness, the sloth and torpor, because it actually has a lifting energy. We actually come back to the object. It brings energy to our practice. What, what works with that is called vichara. And it's a, a, it's, in English, it's sustained thought. And it ha it's the rubbing quality or the immersing quality on the object. So once we aim our attention at the object and we touch the object, and then we sustain our attention on that object, that's called the vichara. And that's what we're attempting to do with our mindfulness, aiming and sustaining, aiming and sustaining. In one of the texts, it, they use the example of vitaka being like you take hold of the pot, and the vichara is wiping the pot. So you take hold of it, and then you have to wipe it. Another example of understanding the, vitara, the vitaka and the vichara is if I use the example of the bell. So the vitaka is when I aim this striker at the bell. And the vichara is the bell's reverberation. It's the sustaining. So I strike, and then as the attention stays with it, that's the, that's the vichara, the sustaining of the attention on the object. This is the knowing of the experience. We, we, we sustain that attention long enough that we actually know what's happening. These are two fairly important aspects in our practice, the vitaka and the vichara, knowing how to aim and knowing how to sustain. This is so much of what we're doing with the mindfulness practice of returning, staying with the object, and keeping some attention there long enough to get to know our experience, long enough to immerse our attention in what's happening so we can actually know what's occurring. And the vichara drives away doubt, because we see so clearly there's no space for the doubt to arise. We know what's happening in our experience. So the first two factors, vitaka and vichara. The third factor that arises as the hindrances start to drop away is called in Pali piti, or rapture, or bliss. And this is the delight and joy that arises from our interest in the object, the interest in that sustaining our attention on the object. We start to become delighted. We start to be happy with the, that kind of attention. And this factor shuts out aversion because we feel happy, we feel delighted. I want to tell you the five kinds of rapture. Because I always think it's so interesting that these teachings can just refine everything so much. 
There's five kinds of rapture. The first one is called minimal or slight rapture. And this rapture is able to make the hairs on the body stand on end. And it may even cause tears to come to the eyes. And then they get stronger. The second kind is called momentary rapture. And it's the repeated production of lightning in the body. Feels like lightning, uh, sharp pulsations of lightning from moment to moment. The third kind is called overflowing rapture. And this is like waves breaking on the seashore. Overflowing rapture floods the body and then breaks like in waves. The fourth kind is called transporting rapture because it's so powerful that it, it said that it, it can actually lift up the body like in levitation. You can, it, it can be so strong that you can actually levitate from this kind of rapture. It's also said that it can make you do things unintentionally and absentmindedly. And the example it is like uh, you can utter an exclamation. You know, you could shout something out uh, because this is uh, so, so uh, strong. Lifting up. The fifth kind is called all-pervading rapture, where the entire body is completely surcharged with it, like a fully blown bladder or like a mountain cavern suddenly filled with a mighty flood of water. The whole body just fills with this all-pervading rapture. This happens. <laughs> and some of you, I know some of you have experienced these different kinds of rapture. The fourth jhanic factor, you can see these, these are, they do bring a certain degree of happiness. The fourth factor is called sukha, or happiness. And this is a softer, calmer feeling than the rapture, than the uh, pity. This is the pleasant feeling that underlies the rapture. And is the happiness of mind that is born from concentration. This is really the, the kind of contentment that's born from concentration. It could be called a direct experience of the happiness of the Buddha, because the mind is happily at home. It doesn't need to go anywhere at all. And in this one experiences a sense of ease and comfort and calm. And this factor excludes the hindrance of restlessness and worry, because there's so much contentment just being right here. Thich Nhat Hanh uh, uh, gave an example of the difference between uh, the rapture and the happiness, the pity and the sukha, to help us understand. And the example he gave was, um, if someone was traveling in the desert, on seeing a stream of cool water, one would experience joy, or the rapture. But on drinking the water, one would experience the happiness, or the contentment. First you'd be feeling that kind of uh, ecstatic kind of delight, and then, ah. So it's a settling, a settling happens. 
And the last factor is called in Pali, igakata, which is the quality of one-pointedness. And it's this one-pointedness which gives rise to the experience of the unified mind. The mind is collected. And this counteracts a sensual desire, the, the desire, because mo- the most alluring distraction can't even move the mind. Nothing can move the mind when the mind is so still and one-pointed. The mind is just not infatuated. It's just so happy to be where it is. So these five factors come together as we start to deepen into our meditation and start to uh, uh, overcome the difficult hindrances of the mind. So as these jhanic factors get stronger, they might lift the mind to the first to the level of first jhana. And I want to say a little bit about the jhanas, um, uh, just to give you a little bit of an overview of these of these uh, states. They might lift the mind, and this is a very big might. Because it's very important to note that not everyone might be, may be able to achieve absorption. It's not really something that everybody can do. I've had friends who have gone to Burma, they've put their time in, they've really tried, and it hasn't happened. It takes, it takes a certain kind of mind, and sometimes a certain kind of character that can actually really turn towards these, these absorption states. But with training, it's likely that anyone can achieve deep states of concentration, or at least access concentration. And these jhanas are not necessary for liberation. In the text, the Buddha said that not all liberated beings have gone through these jhanas. And I think that's a very important point for us because we can start to think, oh no, you know, I can't concentrate my mind. I can't, you know, have these kinds of experiences. I'm never going to be liberated. But these are not important for liberation. By themselves, the jhanas do not bring forth enlightenment and liberation. But the Buddha includes them in the full gradual training because the deep concentration they induce is a powerful force for the development of insight. It's a powerful force for the practice and development of vipassana and insight. So really the best way to use jhana practice to develop these kind of deep states of absorption is to then turn the power of this concentration to insight, to vipassana. And it's really pretty well accepted by most teachers that our meditation must be redirected to the contemplation of things as they actually are, to that changing, diverse multiplicity of phenomena, so we really can start to look deeply into the nature of things, the nature of existence. It's this practice which really brings the deep insights and culminates in the final goal of our, of our path. But the power that can develop through the concentration can be uh, so supportive and helpful 
for our uh, insight practices and is the reason the, the Buddha has put so much emphasis on them. Jhanas are deep states of mental unification which results from putting the attention on a single object which then gives rise to a total immersion in the object. What happens is the mind gets absorbed into that object. And the object that we use for the development of jhana practice is the breath, the sensations of the breath, or sometimes people use the metta phrases as a way to enter into the jhanas. And through the attention on that object, the mind gets immersed and absorbed into that object. It would be very hard to describe that state. And one really needs to have the experience to really know what it would mean to be absorbed. And this is often uh, helped with the guidance of a teacher of direction, because it's a, it's a very vulnerable and fragile area to begin to explore. To be in jhana is to be absorbed. And what jhanas are, actually there's a lot of uh, uh, difference of opinion between whether somebody's in jhana or not in jhana. So even if you think you're in jhana, some people might say you're not in jhana, so it, there's a whole huge area here to explore anyhow. So uh, it's very interesting to start to uh, uh, talk about this and to practice this. As access concentration is like a child who has just learned to walk, absorption concentration is like a man who wants to walk, gets up, and walks. It's like a man who wants to walk, gets up, and walks. You just enter into the jhana. As the mind becomes more refined, and you begin to enter into the jhanas, the each there's jhanic factors that start to drop away and and the mind gets more and more refined as the absorption or as the absorption deepens because the coarser jhanic factors cannot follow into the more more refined states of concentration so the first there's four four form jhanas each one is more and more refined from the next and then there's four what are called the four formless jhanas which are even more refined. And I'm not going to say much more about those right now, because it's a whole area to explore. These are very, very beautiful states of mind. They bring a lot of happiness. And we can get attached to them. They can become distractions. And so when we practice this, we have to be very watchful of this tendency to get attached and to think that they are bringing us into states of freedom and liberation where actually they may just be distractions for us. So to end, I just want to say a little bit about how we can work with this development of concentration in our practice now. And I think that it's important for us to remember that the Buddha said that concentration is enjoyment. And the way to deepen 
into concentration is to get to know what it feels like when we are concentrated. To get to know what that subjective experience is like when our energy comes together in a balanced way. And the key to this is to recognize when the pleasurable feeling arises. When is there that pleasurable feeling that arises when we're in a kind of balance? We get to know that feeling that is in the body. And as we get to know that, we can begin to draw on a cellular memory of the happiness that we know is part of our being. It may feel light, it may feel spacious or grounded, but yet we know, we all have had this, have had, had some experience of pleasure. We know what it's like to feel at ease, to feel calm, to feel balanced. So we begin to feel this, to investigate this, to know what this pleasurable feeling is like, to help us reconnect with this memory of happiness. So maybe right now, just take a moment and to feel what's happening in your experience now. Just to see, is there any pleasurable feeling running through? And it may not be the kind of pleasurable feeling that you're used to or aware of, but as your attention gets quite subtle and connected, just to see what's there. As we do this and we connect with a pleasurable feeling inside, we can find a natural resting place for our mind. We can allow our mind to rest there, which could be effortless and pleasurable. And to do this, we don't struggle. We don't push, we don't try to fabricate or try to make a certain experience happen, but we just relax into our experience and see what's there. Let go of the striving as much as you can and just see if there's some stream of pleasure running through. If there isn't, that's okay, just let it go. And another time, perhaps just checking in, seeing if maybe you might be able to contact that pleasurable feeling and letting your mind rest, letting your attention rest in that. Sometimes we think that we have to uh, overcome it or be concerned about not getting attached in some way. Sometimes we're afraid to feel it. But yet we can just rest into it, allow it. Let ourselves receive this joy, receive the pleasure that runs through. Ajahn Suchito, one of the monks from the Amavati uh, uh, monastery, said that samadhi is the art of refined enjoyment. It is the careful collecting of oneself to the joy of the present moment. 
I think that's so lovely. It's the, the careful collecting of oneself to the joy of the present moment. And I think that expresses a kind of ease that we might be able to experience in whatever we do, in any moment. We, we begin to sense that mindful concentration or that concentrated mindfulness, and what that's like. So therefore, in our practice, whether we're doing Vipassana, whether we're doing metta practice, we invite you to be natural just to be natural, receiving the sensations of the breath and the sensations in the body. Or if you're repeating metta phrases, doing metta practice, just returning back to the words lightly and easily, bringing a light touch to your practice if you can. And as we establish these deeper states of concentration, we can actually begin to work with that intention to remember the happiness. Isn't that an interesting practice, to to remind ourselves to remember happiness? To remember the, the bodily feeling of what it's like to be happy. Connecting with that through that simple intention of wanting happiness, and not a wanting that arises out of a clinging or an attachment to, but the wanting that arises from knowing deep in our heart that happiness lives within me. Maybe that's enough on this. (laughs) Maybe that'll give you something to work with in your practice of concentration and mindfulness. Let's sit for a moment. Just noticing what's there. And returning back again and again. Thank you.